Section 10 of Salt Mines and Castles by Thomas Carr Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. The Rothschild Jewels, the Gehring Collection, Part 3. The 44th AAA Brigade was established in General Keitel's old headquarters, about two miles northwest of Birchtesgaden. With its smooth gravel driveways and well-tended lawns, the place had the air of a luxurious country club. The administrative offices were located in an L-shaped building, a modern adaptation of the familiar Bavarian provincial style. The surrounding buildings, barracks, and small houses had been designed in the same style. We were received by Captain Putman, the chief of staff's adjutant, a brisk young man who promised to provide us with the necessary escort vehicles. "'Cocky fellow, isn't he?' said Steve as we left the office. "'Yes, but I have a feeling we'll get our jeeps on schedule,' I said. My hunch was right. Only once during the entire Birchtesgaden operation did the escort vehicles fail to report for duty at the appointed hour. That one time was when Captain Putman had a day off. By noon the next day, our first convoy of four trucks was ready for the road. Two of the trucks were filled with books, 27 cases of them. The other two contained 25 cases, but not cases of books. Four were filled with glassware, 308 pieces. Seven contained porcelain, 1,135 pieces. Eight contained gold and silver plate, 415 pieces and the remaining six were packed with rugs. These were from Karenhall, near Berlin, the largest of Gehring's seven households. As soon as we had dispatched the convoy, Lamont and four members of the work party resumed the sorting and stacking of the numbered paintings. Sergeant Peck and I, with two helpers to shift the larger canvases, proceeded with the numbering. Steve took off for Alt-Assi to pick up Cress, the photographer, and his paraphernalia. That night, Lamont decided we should improve our quarters. This involved moving from the room we occupied at the front of the building to a much larger one at the back. The new room had several advantages which the old one lacked. It had been the reading room of the rest house in the days of the Luftwaffe occupancy and was attractively paneled in natural oak with built-in bookshelves. It was 30 feet long and 15 feet wide, nearly twice the size of our former room, and opened onto a broad porch. There were French doors and two large windows which afforded a spectacular view of the mountain range to the east. The eagle's nest crowned the highest of the peaks. At one end of the room was an alcove with a built-in desk and couch. With a little fixing up, it could be turned into a comfortable sitting room. Before we could transfer our belongings to this spacious apartment, we had to clear out a few of the Reich Marshals, half a dozen pieces of sculpture, and three large altarpieces. The outstanding piece of sculpture was a life-size statue of the Magdalene, which Goering had acquired from the Louvre. Similarly, the most important of the three altarpieces was a big triptych, which had also come from the Louvre. Goering did not remove these items by force. 
He obtained them by exchange after prolonged negotiations with the officials of the museum. According to the information given me, both parties were well pleased with the trade. As I recall, the Louvre received six objects from the Reich Marshal's collection in return for the triptych and the statue. I was told that one of the six pieces was a painting by Coypel, the 18th century French artist, which had belonged to one of the Paris Rothschilds. It was because they were of German workmanship that Goering particularly coveted the pieces which he had obtained from the Louvre. It is presumed that this did not prejudice the Louvre in their favor. The statue, portraying the Magdalene clothed only in her long blonde tresses, was known as La Belle Alamande, the beautiful German. It was an exceptionally fine example, in polychromed wood, of the work of Gregor Erhardt, a Swabian sculpture of the first quarter of the 16th century. I fancied that Goering detected a resemblance between the statue and his wife. Lamont and I carried the statue down to the first floor of the rest house and placed it at the foot of the stairs. It was one of the last objects we packed for shipment, and during our stay at Birchtesgaden, I had the uncomfortable feeling that I had caught Frau Goering on her way to the bath. I was not the only one with that idea. One evening I found the G.I. guard draping a raincoat about the Magdalene's shoulders. I had given strict orders that the guards were to touch nothing in the collection, so I stopped to have a word with him on the subject. He said with a sheepish look, I didn't mean to break the rules, sir, but I thought Emmy looked cold. The altarpiece which Goering acquired from the Louvre was a sumptuous affair consisting of three panels painted with nearly life-size figures against a gold background. It was by the master of the Holy Kinship, an artist of the Cologne School of the 15th century. The large center panel represented the presentation in the temple, the right-hand panel, the adoration of the Magi, the left-hand panel, Christ appearing to Mary. During its recent peregrinations, the central panel had cracked from top to bottom. But fortunately, the cleavage, which ran through the center of the middle panel, fell in an area devoid of figures. An adroit restorer could easily repair the damage. We shifted the altarpiece to an adjoining room. The two remaining altarpieces were works of the 15th century French school. One represented the crucifixion, the other the Passion of Christ. The crucifixion had belonged to the Paris dealer Seligman, whose collection had been confiscated by the Nazis. The inventory did not show the name of the former owner of the other panel. A highly imaginative composition with nocturnal illumination, it was attributed to the rare French master Jean Bellegombe. As we carried the altarpieces into the room in which we had placed the one from the Louvre, I remarked to Lamont that for a godless fellow, Goering seemed to have had nice taste for religious subjects. The pieces of sculpture, which we added to the collection in the lower hallway, were also of devotional character. Two Gothic statues of St. George and the Dragon, one of St. Barbara, and two of the Madonna and Child. We brought three large wardrobes from our old room, 
place two of them at right angles to the walls to form a partition, and set the third in a corner of the new room. The beds came next. In another hour, we had the furniture arranged to our satisfaction. By the time we had added a silver lamp, borrowed temporarily from the Goering collection, and tacked up a few of our photographs, the place looked as though we had been living there for weeks. Without Steve, the loading went more slowly, but we managed to finish three trucks by two o'clock the next day. The driver of one of the escort jeeps had brought us a message from Munich that it would simplify the work at the central collecting point if we dispatched the trucks in groups of three or four instead of waiting until we had six loaded. At the Alt-Aussie mine, we hadn't been able to work on such a schedule because we lacked sufficient escort vehicles. We didn't have that problem at Burstesgaden because the shorter distance made possible a one-day turnaround. The jeeps could easily make the round trip in half a day. Accordingly, we sent off our second convoy that afternoon. The trucks contained the rest of the books, 43 cases in all, 65 paintings, and 15 of the larger pieces of sculpture. In anticipation of Cress's arrival, we spent the next morning assembling all the paintings that appeared to have suffered recent damage of any kind. His first job would be to take a photographic record, which we would include in our final report on the evacuation of the collection. We found 34 pictures in this category. Only two had sustained serious injury. These were the side panels of the large triptych by the 16th century Italian artist Raffaellino del Garbo. They had been badly splintered by machine gun fire while the collection was still aboard the special train which had brought it to Burstus Garden. Three other panels bore the marks of stray bullets, but the harm done was relatively slight. In general, the damage consisted of minor nicks and scratches and water spots. Considering the hazards to which the collection had been exposed, the pictures had come through remarkably well. I was reminded of what George Stout had said. There's a lot of nonsense talked about the fragility of the old masters. By and large, they are a hardy lot. Otherwise, they wouldn't have lasted this long. We had worked our crew all day Sunday, so we told them to knock off as soon as we had finished selecting and segregating the damaged pictures. With the afternoon to ourselves, we turned our attention to the miscellaneous assortment of objects in the gold room. This was the name given to the small room on the ground floor in which Sergeant Peck had stored the things of great intrinsic value. There were 75 pieces in all, gold chalices studded with precious stones, silver tankards, reliquaries of gold and enamel work, boxes of jade and malachite, candelabra, clocks and lamps of marble and gold, precious plaques of carved ivory, and sets of gold table ornaments. They presented a specialized packing job which Lamont and I could handle better alone than with inexperienced helpers. Our first problem was to find some small packing cases. We searched the rest house without success. Then Lamont remembered seeing a pile of individual wooden file cabinets in the little chapel where most of the furniture was stored. These were admirably suited to our purpose. 
They were rectangular boxes about six feet long and two feet high. Each was divided into three compartments. There were thirty of them, more than enough for the job. We had a supply of flannel cloths, which we had borrowed from a packing firm in Munich. After wrapping each piece, we placed it in one of the compartments of the file cabinet. We stuffed the compartments with excelsior so that the objects could not move about. A few of the items were equipped with special leather cases. Among these were two swords. One, with a beautifully etched blade of Toledo steel, had been presented to Goering by the Spanish Air Force. The other, with a jewel-studded gold handle, had been a gift from Mussolini. There was also a gold baton encrusted with precious stones, a present from the Reichsmarschall's own air force. Of all these objects, perhaps twenty were of modern workmanship. In contrast to the older things, they were ornate without being beautiful. Ugliest of the lot was a standing lamp. The stock, eight inches in diameter, was a shaft of beaten gold. The shade, with a filigree design, was also of gold, as were the pull cords. Rivaling it in costly vulgarity was a set of gold table ornaments. The large centerpiece consisted of an elliptical framework. At each end and in the center of the two sides stood Egyptian maidens fashioned of gold four feet high. The German slang word for such stuff is kitsch. I think the closest English equivalent is corny. Toward the end of the afternoon, we were waited on by a delegation of three officers from the 101st Airborne Division. They had come to inquire if we would consider turning over to them the gold sword which Mussolini had given to Goering. They wanted it as a trophy for a club of 101st Airborne officers which they were organizing. They planned to set up a club room when they got back home and have annual reunions. The sword, they said, would be such an appropriate souvenir. I told them that I had been directed to ship everything to Munich and did not have authority to make any other disposition of objects in the collection. But since a sword could not be regarded as a cultural object, a fact which I called to their attention, I suggested that they take the matter up with 3rd Army Headquarters in Munich. I refrained from informing them that, for all of me, they could have their pick of the modern objects in the gold room. We made an interesting discovery that afternoon. Rummaging in a closet off the gold room, we found a stack of photograph albums. At the bottom of the heap lay an enormous portfolio, it contained architects' drawings for the proposed expansion of Karen Hall. The estate, greatly enlarged, was to have become a public museum. We had heard that Goering intended to present his art collection to the Reich on his 60th birthday. Here was concrete proof of those intentions. Each drawing bore the date, January 1945. Steve returned in triumph at noon the next day. With him in the command car was Cress, looking more timid than ever. Steve said that Cress had had a bad time after we left Alt-Assi. The boys at House 71 had clapped him in jail and left him there for two days before interrogating him. 
Steve had been burned up about it and had given them a piece of his mind. He said contemptuously that he had known all along they didn't have anything on Cress, but he was content to let bygones be bygones. Steve had his man Friday back again. He pointed happily to the six-by-six, which had pulled up behind the command car. All of Cress's photographic equipment was packed up inside it. There was a tremendous lot of stuff. Three large cameras, a metal table for drawing prints, reflectors, a sink, pipes of various sizes, boxes of film and paper, and a couple of large cabinets. Steve planned to get everything installed at once. Cress was to sleep in one of the rooms of the rest house. An adjoining room was to be set up as a dark room. We showed Steve our new quarters and suggested that Crest take over our old room. The one next door would make a good dark room. I asked Steve how he was going to get all the stuff installed. He'd have to have a plumber. That didn't bother Steve. He asked me to tell the mess sergeant that Crest was to have his meals with the civilian help in the kitchen. He'd take care of everything else. Steve was as good as his word. He found a plumber, and by the end of the day, Cress was ready to start work. Notwithstanding these interruptions, Lamont and I managed to load and dispatch a convoy of three trucks. This third convoy contained 200 paintings, 30 tapestries, 15 more pieces of large sculpture, and a dozen pieces of Italian Renaissance furniture. At odd moments during our first days at Birchtest Garden, we had worried about the sculpture. In the first three convoys, we had disposed of only 30 of the 250 pieces. Most of those remaining were just under life-size. We had no materials with which to build crates, and even if we had had the lumber, the labor of building them would have greatly delayed the evacuation. That evening, we found the solution of the problem. The three of us were standing on the open porch outside our room after supper. Two of the trucks were parked by the loading platform directly below. Why not make a checkerboard pattern of ropes strung waist-high across the truck bed? The floor of the truck could be padded with excelsior. We could set a statue in each of the squares. The ropes would hold each piece in place. If we stuffed quantities of excelsior between the statues, they wouldn't rub. Perhaps it was a crazy idea. On the other hand, it might work. The following morning, Steve and two of the men prepared the truck, while Lamont and I selected the statues for the trial load. We chose 30 of the largest pieces. We figured on seven or eight rows, with four statues in each row. Cress set up his camera on the porch and photographed the progress of the operation. One by one, the long row of Madonnas, saints, and angels was set in place. We hadn't been far off in our calculations. There were 29 in all. The truck looked like a tumbrel of the French Revolution filled with victims for the guillotine. It was a new technique in the packing of sculpture, Steve said we'd have to send George Stout a photograph, and we'll have to send for more Excelsior, too, Lamont said. He was quite right. We had used up the last shred. That afternoon, Steve combed the countryside for a fresh supply of Excelsior, returning just before supper with three new bales. 
In the meantime, Lamont went over, with Cress, the paintings to be photographed. Sergeant Peck and I completed numbering the last of the pictures. The next day, we loaded three more trucks. With Steve on hand to crack the whip over the men, the loading went fast. So fast, in fact, that Sergeant Peck had a hard time checking off the paintings as they were hoisted onto the trucks. We packed 400 pictures, the cases containing the gold and silver objects which Lamont and I had finished the day before, and another dozen pieces of furniture. The convoy, our fourth, got off in the early afternoon. We placed a special guard on the truck with the sculpture to make sure that the driver didn't smoke on the way. We finished one more truck and stopped for a cigarette. It was a hot day, and we didn't feel like doing any more work. Steve had gone up to the dark room to see Cress. Lamont said, let's go up to Munich. That suits me, but what excuse have we got, I asked. If we must have an excuse, I can think of at least four, he said thoughtfully. We're out of cigarettes and candy. We ought to be on hand when they unpack the sculpture at the collecting point. We've worked for a week without taking a day off, and perhaps there'll be some mail for us at Posey's office. What about the little brown bear? Do you think he'll mind our taking off? I asked. This was Lamont's name for Steve, but it was never used when he was within earshot. Steve had his trip for this week, said Lamont, meaning Steve's trip to Altasi. Sergeant Peck, who had overheard part of our conversation, asked if he might join us. We told him to be ready in ten minutes and went off to notify Steve of our plans and to pack up our musette bags. Steve was so busy helping Cress with his developing that he scarcely paid any attention to us. After leaving him a final injunction to have at least three trucks loaded before we got back the next evening, we called for the command car. The driver, a restless redhead named Friedberg, who hated the monotonous routine at Berchtesgaden, was delighted with the idea of going to Munich. Sergeant Peck appeared, and we set off. We chose the shorter road through the mountains and overtook the convoy on the Audubon halfway to Munich. The front escort jeep was holding down the speed to 35 miles an hour in accordance with my instructions. The driver waved envyingly as we passed them doing 50. Twenty miles from Munich, Friedberg turned west off the Audubon and took the back road from Bad Tolls, a shortcut which brought us directly to Third Army Headquarters. We arrived at Captain Posey's office just as Lincoln Kirsten was leaving for Chow. He told us that the captain had gone to Pilsen the middle of the week, but he was due back that evening. There's quite a lot of mail for both of you, Lincoln said. He handed us each a thick batch of letters. It was the first mail I had received from home in six weeks. There were 42 letters. I told you there'd be mail for us, said Lamont with a satisfied smile. We had supper with Craig Smythe and Ham Coulter at the detachment that evening. Craig said that the convoy had not arrived before he left the collecting point, but two of his German workmen were to be on duty the next morning, even though it was Sunday. We arranged to meet him at his office and supervise the unloading. Lincoln had said that Posey would not be back before 10, so we spent the evening with Craig and Ham at their apartment. 
Just before we returned to Third Army Headquarters, Ham gave us a small paper-bound volume. It was entitled The Ludwigs of Bavaria. The author was Henry Shannon. This is one of the most fascinating books I've ever read, Ham said. You might take it along with you. I thanked him and stuck it in my musette bag. Before our operations in Bavaria ended two months later, that little book had come to mean a great deal to the members of the evacuation team. We called it our Bavarian Bible. So alluring were Shannon's descriptions of the seven wonders of Bavaria that whenever we had a free day or even a few hours to ourselves, we made excursions to these architectural fantasies. The swirling Baroque churches of Wies, Weltenburg, Autobahn, and Wirzenheiligen the Amalienburg, and the palace of Hiranshimsi. The residence at Würzburg, which we had seen, was one of the seven. Unofficially, we added an eighth to the list, Schloss Linderhof, Ludwig II's opulent little palace near Oberammergau, ornate and vulgar, yet fascinating in its lonely mountain setting. But these were extracurricular activities, falling outside the orbit of our official work. We found Captain Posey at his office when we got there a few minutes before ten that evening. He asked us for a complete account of our operations at Burstesgaden. We reported that we had sent a total of 14 truckloads up to Munich the first week, that we had cleaned out half the pictures, but that we had just begun on the sculpture. We estimated that it would take us another 10 days to finish. We would probably fill 17 or 18 more trucks. We asked him what plans he would have for us when we completed the job. He said he might send us to the castle of Neuschwanstein. The place was full of things looted from Paris. In fact, it was one of the major repositories of the Einsatzstaub Rosenberg. The French were clamoring to have it evacuated. Then there was another big repository in a Carthusian monastery at Buxheim. That, too, contained loot from Paris. Perhaps we could take a run down to both places and size up the jobs after we had finished with the Goering things. The captain was tired after his long trip, so we didn't go into details about either of the two prospective assignments. He offered us a billet for the night, and the three of us turned in shortly after eleven. It was none too soon for me. I still had 42 unopened letters from home in the pocket of my jacket. When we arrived at the collecting point the next morning, the two German workmen who had been with me at Hohenfurth were starting to unpack the truck with the sculpture. Lamont and I examined each statue as it was lifted from its nest of excelsior. All 29 had come through without a scratch. Our experiment was a success. We would be able to use the same technique with the rest of the sculpture. I instructed the workmen to leave all of the excelsior in the truck, as we had none to spare. I persuaded Craig to drive back to Birchdust Garden with us for the night. He looked tired, and I thought the change would do him good. His responsibilities at the collecting point, the bow, as we called it, our abbreviation for Verwaltungsbau, were heavy, and he never took a day off. On the return trip, he told us his latest troubles. Only three days ago, a small bomb had exploded in the basement of the bow. 
It had blown one of the young German workmen to bits. Craig gave all the grisly details, which included discovering one of the poor fellow's arms in a heap of debris fifty feet from the scene of the explosion. The tragedy had had one beneficial result. For weeks, Craig had been harping on the subject of additional guards for the collecting point. His words had fallen on deaf ears until the bomb episode. He said that a general and three colonels arrived at the building within half an hour. Since then, everyone had been so security conscious that he had had no further difficulty in obtaining the desired number of guards. The bomb disposal unit inspected the premises, and some pointed comments were made about the thoroughness of the original survey. In our absence, Steve had loaded three trucks. As a reward for his labors, I suggested that he take Craig up to the Eagle's Nest the following morning. While they were gone, Lamont and I finished three more loads. We had the convoy of six lined up by noon. Craig returned to Munich in one of the escort jeeps. This fifth convoy contained 167 paintings, 106 pieces of sculpture, 25 tapestries, 68 cases filled with bibelots, and 53 pieces of furniture. It was our largest convoy out of Berchtesgaden so far. It was also the first one to break down. Late in the afternoon, the rear escort jeep arrived at the rest house with word that two of the trucks had broken down 15 miles out of Berchtesgaden. Steve and I drove to Berchtesgaden to arrange to have them towed in for reloading. I also wanted to do a little investigating. There could be little excuse for breakdowns on the Munich road if the trucks had been in good mechanical condition when they started out. On the way into town, Steve said, Tom, I think I know what caused the trouble. I didn't think of it until just now. But the other day, on the road back from Aunt Ossie, two six-by-sixes passed me at a hell of a clip. I thought I recognized the drivers as two of ours. I questioned the lieutenant in charge of the drivers. He professed ignorance of any unauthorized junkets back to Alt Ossie. I am going to have a word with Tiny, said Steve as we left the lieutenant's room. Tiny was the head mechanic and the only one of the entire crew who was always on the job. Steve wanted to talk to him alone, so I waited in the car. A few minutes later, he came back with a satisfied grin on his face. I got the whole story, he said. The drivers have been racing back and forth to Alt Ossie all the time we've been here. They were crazy about it up at the mine. Tiny says they hate it here at Birchtesgaden. Well, we'll fix that, I said. I went back to the lieutenant. How many drivers have you got and how many trucks, I asked. Sixteen drivers and thirteen trucks, he said. Send eight of the drivers and five of the trucks up to Munich first thing in the morning and have them report to the trucking company. We can finish the job here without them. Steve always sang when he was in a particularly happy frame of mind. That evening, on the way back to the rest house, he was in exceptionally good voice. Five days later, we completed the evacuation of the Gehring Collection. The last two convoys, of four and seven trucks respectively, contained the larger pictures, 177 of them, 
60 pieces of sculpture, 20 miscellaneous cases, 67 pieces of furniture, and 200 empty picture frames. We had heavy rain that last week, and the mud was ankle-deep around the loading platform. Although it was early August, the nights were cold, and the rest house, emptied of its treasures, was a cheerless place. We were glad to see the last of the trucks pull out of the drive. It had been a strenuous operation, 31 truckloads in 13 days. In the afternoon, we would collect our personal belongings and return to Munich. End of section 10.